14 Bannerman Road is where Sarah Jane Smith lives. And 14 Bannerman Road is the name of my podcast about it. This time, The Curse of Clyde Langer, Parts 1 and 2, both written by Phil Ford and directed by Ashley Way, much the same as last time, with Part 1 first broadcast on the 10th of October 2011, and Part 2 first broadcast on the 11th of October 2011. Before we begin, I'd like to mention something not necessarily related to this episode, but sort of related to all the episodes. As we know, this is the penultimate one of Series 5, there are three more episodes that are unmade. They were gone into detail about in a special edition of Doctor Who magazine, and a huge shout out to the Twitter account at SJA Out of Context. Follow them if you'd like to see clips of the Sarah Jane Adventures out of context. Uh, thanks to them, I was able to get my hands on the relevant pages of that magazine. But as an additional bit of information on one of the pages, Russell T Davies goes into the clothing choices around mid-series four, where it's decided that they can't keep dressing our gang as kids anymore. Now, I noticed in Lost in Time, I'm not sure if I mentioned it, but I noticed that Clyde gained a sort of snazzy new jacket, overall looking more mature. Luke, of course, got his new scarf, but where Tommy Knight was about 18, and it was essentially the age of the character that he was playing, I found out that Daniel Anthony, who played Clyde, in this series, was 24. 24. Angie Mahindra was about 21-ish as well. And as such, Series 5 was going to be their last series before they moved on to Parsha's New. So, as I brought up last time, it sort of feels appropriate to freshen the show up now, bring in some new faces, you know, with Sky. And that leads us nicely into 13 Bannerman Road is where Sarah Jane Smith lives, and it's home to things way beyond your imagination. There's an extraterrestrial supercomputer in the wall, a son, a genetically engineered boy genius, a schoolgirl investigator across the road, her adopted daughter from another world, and a whole universe of adventure right here on the doorstep. Sky is in the intro now. I think the visuals are basically the same as the last episode, sort of mixture of clips from series 4 and 5. But yes, this is the most complete version of the intro that we've had. And then they do the ready always bit, and we cold open, or as cold as an episode can be when we've had just an intro thing, you know the drill. Uh, into Clyde, sitting somewhere outside, sheltering from the rain, and he asks towards the camera, but not quite down the lens, sort of indicating that there's someone he's talking to that we can't see. He asks where they were on the day of the storm. You know the one, I mean. Now he goes on to say that he was at school, and then we see him in what I assume is a sixth form area with Rani. He's doodling in what appears to be a book on the French Revolution, so Rani asks him about parallels between it and the credit crunch, and he, he can't answer because he's really drawing a comic called The Silver Bullet. And then I wonder if we're going to get some kind of credit crunch theme because it feels like it's the sort of place you try setting that up or if that's just a bit too obvious and they're just picking the topic that a history teacher at the time might ask so we can get into the real conversation which is to do with Clyde saying that he is also working on another comic called Susie June Jones Alien Slayer and I would like to ask Clyde to have a an original idea but b also maybe pay attention to any of the last four years and realise that we aren't necessarily meant to be slaying aliens all the time. Uh, now, the comic prop itself is not hand-drawn. It seems to have been printed. I mean, I assume originally at some point hand-drawn, but but this, yeah, it, it, it looks like it's, it's fresh off a printer. But it makes me wonder who actually did the art. Now, I saw that they made this a real comic about 10 years ago. They put a link to it up on the website. So I thought, if I can track down that link, maybe they've got the artist there. And after some fun on the Wayback Machine, because the link is currently dead, but there is actually an archive of it, it turns out that the PDF does not have the artist's name. No, but for those wondering, the Silver Bullet is basically Batman, but if he was a blue-collar worker by day instead of a billionaire. You'd think he'd be speedy, the Silver Bullet, but no, or, or werewolf hunter, maybe? Um, but he's more sort of a lurk-in-the-shadows, beat-up-arms dealers, save reporters kind of dude. That was a tangent, back to the story. Haresh is here. He's of course the headmaster, but it seems a while since we've seen him being a headmaster. I also thought the last episode was his last appearance, so that must have been just Geeta's last appearance, because she's, she's not in this episode at all. Which means that this episode is, I believe, Haresh's last appearance. He's welcoming Sky to the school. She's saying she's a keen learner, you know, etc. Clyde says that she's a bright spark which is accompanied by Harish's desk lamp flickering because he's got her powers. Uh, but before he can even think about that, he is distracted by a fish landing on the windowsill. <laughs> and then he goes out to confront the student that he presumes threw it. And then there's more. And Clyde and Rani in the sixth form area can, can hear them slapping on the roof. And they go outside and it's raining fish. And I tell you what, some of them look real. <laughs> so... 
like just slapping about on the floor, dying. I, I assume is the BBC responsible for killing fish? Are they very good animatronics? Will there be a disclaimer at the end saying that no fish were harmed? I'd I'd love there to have been uh, Sarah Jane Confidential, like Doctor Who Confidential, so we can see more behind the scenes stuff like this. But we get another shot. The ones in the shot clearly animated so my best guess is that it's a mix of cgi and then animatronics for close-ups but i'm not ruling out that they've just brought in the odd real live fish to lay on the floor and flap about and die for our entertainment clyde says the whole thing looks dead fishy because <laughs> of course he would and we roll titles before the title music is even over sarah jane's in the attic with the gang and mr smith i need you so thanks for making my supercut audio more annoying there and he says that there have been reports of fish rain before Sarah Jane kind of takes over and says, well, they were small, though, and the ones today were this big. And then she has to awkwardly scale her hands down to the actual size of the fish we saw earlier. It's amazing. I love her very much. Mr. Smith scans for alien signals. Uh, can't really find any alien signals, but he mentions an exhibition at the Museum of Culture, which is a different museum to the one we're at the moment Lisa in. And they're showing off a totem pole, which was referred to as the totem pole of the Lost Tribe. Now, I... I'm immediately a tad wary, because I don't know how sensitive we're going to be to Native American culture here. I'm not really the one who can make that call anyway. I mean, it's not particularly sensitive to nick a bit of Native American culture and stuff it in a museum in England, really. But hey, that does happen an awful lot. So that's sort of the show reflecting the realities of life. But basically, he brings it up because he says that it was found in a cave in the Mojave. And there's a note here from TV Tropes that says... The totem poles are a Pacific Northwest thing, and the Mojave is in the Southwest. So, either someone hasn't done their research, or they have done their research and there's a deliberate reason for getting it wrong. We'll have to see. And then the legend goes that um, when it was first removed from the cave, it rained fish. So, now it's over here, it's probably what was causing the whole deal with the raining fish earlier. It would be very coincidental if not, hey Sarah Jane, how about you go check that out? Sky wants to know about museums. What's, what's the whole deal with them? Sarah Jane says they help preserve our history. Gonna point out again, wouldn't call this our history. <laughs> and Ronnie says that her mum and dad met in a museum, but only because her mum went in, because it was raining. And then, outside, uh, a lady asks Clyde if he's got enough change for a sandwich, and he gives her some. And Sky is interested in that interaction, and he says, uh, you know, she's a scrounger, but it's probably not her fault. Not the most progressive way of looking at it, but not the least progressive way of looking at it. Par for the course, circa 2011, I'd say, yeah, this is the kind of stuff they show on TV. That's 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 the kind of way they look at things. Once they enter the museum, we see the totem pole, among other things, and the show keeps up its tradition of just not protecting museum pieces. Like, there's a sign that says don't touch, but there is nothing to stop you from touching it. Now, Rani is very rude and calls it ugly. I think that's unnecessary if you don't have anything nice to say. Don't say it. But I get why they're doing that, because then it leads into Sarah Jane sort of giving a bit of context and saying, well, the totem poles were kind of a way of, of writing stories. And then Clyde ignores the sign, and he touches the pole, and he gets a splinter, and he is told off by Dr. Samantha Madigan, who, when Sarah Jane introduces herself as a journalist, asks if she's investigating the link between the pole and the raining fish. Sky asks if there is an actual link, and Madigan says, well, no, I, I don't really believe so but it has drummed up great publicity, so maybe Hedicum Tech is watching over us after all. She explains that Hedicum Tech was a god who tried to enslave the people of the Great Plains. Long story short, they got together, they tricked him into being trapped in the totem pole, and then presumably hauled it from sort of north central USA or even Canada over to the west coast to hide it in a cave. Quite, quite the trick. I don't know if that was possible at the time. I don't know the exact time that this totem pole is supposed to have been carved. Apparently that's what they did. Hey, there's a cave over there. Just get it out of the way, please. We don't want to deal with it anymore. Edicum Tech is a complete fabrication for the show. I'm not sure if that is better or worse than misinterpreting an actual god. Um, I'm going to lean towards better. But yeah, it's just an interesting way to, to kick off this main story. Uh, you, there's, there's other ways to curse a man, isn't there? But no, we're going with the Native American route, which just it feels... Doesn't, it doesn't feel exactly PC. Sarah Jane says that an alien masquerading as a god wouldn't be the first time, which I am informed by trusty sources is another reference to the Pyramids of Mars. 
And then she scans it with her watch. Can't detect any alien energy. Now, I've got to say, props. I imagine props are, are, are quite overlooked a lot of the time. They have done an amazing job on this totem pole because it's a genuinely impressive thing, but also possibly quite an offensive thing. Like, I imagine if you wanted to do this right, you would you would go to actual Native American people and you'd ask if they'd be willing to carve something for use in a TV show so you could do it with a proper level of respect. I can't imagine that this show had the budget to, to do that, but also nobody's forcing you to write it in. As I said, there's other ways to curse a man. At home, Clyde has a lovely time with his mum that's just so lovely that you know that everything is seconds away from going wrong. It's like, okay, spoilers for just video games, Life is Strange series. It's the start of Life is Strange 2. You know when the dad is like the best dad to ever dad, and then everything goes wrong? That's, that's the kind of vibes we're getting right here. Just before bed, he puts the finishing touches to his comic. Uh, he even says, step aside, Batman. So, this is plagiarism. Clyde, Susie June Jones is, is plagiarism of Sarah Jane's life. The silver bullet is plagiarism of Batman. You can't keep getting away with this, man. Uh, his finger seems to cause him a bit of pain from where he got the splinter earlier, but he just sort of shrugs it off, goes to sleep. And as he goes to sleep, every instance of his name, from the one that he just signed on his comic to previous signatures on artwork to, you know, it's where it's printed on certificates and stuff that he's got up on the wall, they all start to glow a very violent orange. Come the morning, Clyde makes his way over to Sarah Jane's house. She says that Mr. Smith couldn't find anything, so maybe it was just coincidental freak weather and they could stand down. And Clyde shows off his comic, with Sarah Jane considering it very good and praising him and saying that he's bright when he says, well, that's you know, the only thing I am good at. And then the second he says, look out, Stanley, here comes Clyde Langer, we get a close-up shot of Sarah Jane's eye, and it's so sudden it genuinely made me jump. And his name appears in orange across her eye, and Sarah Jane's mood has changed to rather more hostile. Her anger sort of builds up, and Clyde's a joker, so he says that, you know, being a rocket scientist is fine if you're a super brain like Luke. You know, it's just sort of a tad teasingly, that's kind of his, his demeanour, but with affection. And Sarah Jane takes offence at this. She says, oh, what well, a super brain, so you say that like it's a bad thing. And so he apologises. But then her rage bursts out and she says, you know, what, since he turned up, he always told Luke how uncool he was, what a geek he was, what a freak he was. All the while, Clyde is wasting his time on these rubbish comics. Her son is worth a hundred of him. He should get out now. Complete 180 from what she was like just moments ago. Great performance from this. And I like that it kind of makes sense. These are somewhat legitimate arguments against Clyde. It's not out of nowhere, per se. I mean, it... it, it, it Feel it's come on very suddenly, so we know that something is very wrong. It's not what Sarah Jane genuinely feels, but it's there's still there's still a bit of reasoning behind it, and I, I appreciate that that they they put that in. I think maybe the shot with the eye spells it out a bit too much. What you know, it's I think just seeing the splinter and then having having all this, especially because we saw him feel the pain in his finger again, so it wasn't just you know well splinter that we're not going to refer back to the splinter is a plot point and now people get angry at him and we can we can piece together we saw his name glow we can piece together that it is the name that is causing this i feel like i just feel i feel like the show just likes to spell things out a little bit too much but again i'm no longer the target audience so maybe that's what you need now clyde has no idea why she's suddenly so angry at him he says this is crazy. She says, oh, I'll give you crazy. And she brandishes her sonic at him. No idea what she intends to do with that. But he doesn't stick around to find out. Over the road, Ronnie and Horesh are coming out of their house, ready to head to school. He says Sarah Jane's gone mental. And then when Horesh says, ah, oh, Clyde Langer, which he sort of, to be fair to him, he tends to, he tends to do. He go, he'll, he'll refer, him to his, refer to Clyde by his full name. So it's not that weird. We, we're kind of working it in here. Uh, I mean, I think in the end, if, even if you just say Clyde, it kind of sets you off. But working it in here, that when people are saying his full name, they are bringing it up in a, a kind of organic manner-ish. Anyway, Harish says, ah, Clyde Langer, we get the eye thing again, suddenly they hate him. When Rani says that to him, he looks genuinely hurt. And Harish tells him to stay away from her. As far as school goes, he's excluded. I'm not sure that Anjali Mahindra can convey the anger quite as well as Elizabeth Sladen or Ace Batty. 
I'm getting kind of hints of Androvax coming in again, but it's all right. It's just okay. It does the job. Clyde knows that something is wrong. Something's obviously got to Sarah Jane. It's got to Ronnie. It's got to Harish. They're not acting like themselves. So he tries to plead with them to recognize that this is this is weird behavior. Please take a look at what you're doing right now. It's so you know I don't know what's happened, but something's obviously up. But when they 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 won't budge because they hate him too much, he says, "Okay, I'm going. I'm going to try and put this right, whatever it is. But fine, you don't want me here. I'll I'll leave. Fine, bye." Ronnie says she doesn't care what he does as long as she never sees him again. And he walks off looking incredibly sad. In the attic, Sarah Jane is ripping up Clyde's drawings that he's left there. Mrs. Smith asks if she's okay, having scanned her and detected an intense anger. But then she turns to him and she's perfectly fine again. Enter Skye in her uniform, with Sarah Jane saying that she's barely been here a month and now she's off to school and how incredibly proud of her she is and how brave Skye is. And Skye's asking, well, what? Why, why do I have to be brave? Is school dangerous? She's she's still she's still learning about things. Sarah Jane is back to her lovely, comforting self to show that this this is really only a curse of Clyde Langer. Aha, uh-huh, the name of the show, and and you know it's it's not affecting anybody else. I mean, Clyde, you shouldn't have touched it. You should have obeyed the sign. Though this does feel like an incredibly disproportionate punishment for having touched the totem pole. So, yeah, I like how serious it is already. It's like it, it's because it, it's affecting one of our main characters. It's not like, oh no, a totem pole has made some people angry out of somewhere and we need to stop it. It's it's affecting someone so close to us. We're seeing all the like ties between people that this is sort of serving as a mother figure and, you know, friends. All those links are being severed and he's being really isolated already and is genuinely like sad to see. Sarah Jane says to Sky that while Sky's at school, she's gonna go back to the totem pole. She's gonna find out what she can not for alien reasons, but just so that she can write up a story about it, sell to a newspaper, I imagine, doing her actual journalism work that she does when she's not up against aliens. And um, she says that Rani will be close by at school to look after her. And then when Sky mentions, oh, and Clyde too, Sarah Jane flies into a rage again, tells her to stay away from him. Interestingly, Sky seems unaffected, as does Mr. Smith. I see. Well, I mean, we need our main characters to save the day. So this is going to be Sky's initiation then, I guess. So let's see what she can do. I like the idea of that. Now, at the moment, Sky's just confused and asked why Sarah Jane is, is, is angry with Clyde. But she doesn't give an explanation because she doesn't really have one. She just says, stay away. Don't mention him to me again. But Mr. Smith asks if Clyde has upset her. She instructs him to not mention him either, but to actually set up a permanent scan for if he ever sets foot in Bannerman Road again to deal with him. Now... We find out a little bit later that he lives like one road over, so man, you you can't he can't even come down this road anymore. He's just he's just he can't even go about in his own neighborhood. We know Mister Smith can also like trap people inside him. He's literally done it to Clyde before, so I'm not sure if that's what deal with him means or if it's he, murder. Is is Mister Smith capable of murder? I don't. Mm, but he, he'll be dealt with should he, he he step into this road again. So oof. Clyde sits in the park. Phones Luke, makes the mistake of saying it's Clyde. And so, although we can't hear Luke's side from Clyde's reaction, we see that Luke gets angry and hangs up. Clyde's got kind of a thick shirt on over his school uniform. It's making me think about the clothing choices again that I mentioned at the start, and how I said they want to make him look more grown up. But this is still quite a school uniform heavy episode. I've got to say, I mean, I was shocked by to hear their actual ages. They 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 have youthful faces, and they, they pull off the, the roles of being slightly younger than they actually are quite well and they look fine in their school uniforms so yeah i wouldn't have even known a ball rolls rolls over to clyde uh kicked by steve who was a kid that was in clyde's year at school i remember seeing him before i can't remember the exact episode but steve has obviously decided not to go to sixth form and asks if clyde's given up on it seeing as he's in the park and i think it's quite nice to see that other characters grow up alongside them too i think that's that's quite good steve invites him to join in the football match Clyde says he can't, but then we sort of ourselves, Steve's job hunting is going, and Steve says sarcastically that he's got a scout from Chelsea coming down later, offering a quarter mil a week, he'll be able to get with one of Girls Aloud or the Saturdays. That dates the episode there, somewhat. Must be weird when that happens as well. Like, if you're minding your own business making music, and then suddenly you're confirmed to exist within the universe. Must be a little bit weird. 
But he continues, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll even put in a good word for you. I'll say, I got this mate, Clyde Langer, and then eyes, hatred. The extras in the background over here, this conversation, slaves, so they all start to crowd around Clyde as if they want to beat him up. Clyde realizes now that it happened when they said his name. Now, Steve's sort of justification for his anger is that Clyde is too high and mighty now. He's in sixth form, never hangs out with them, must think he's better than them. And that makes me realize that Rani didn't really have one, nor Haresh. And I feel like, I feel like they could do. They could be annoyed by his jokes. They could think him immature. This is not just turning to me getting up on Clyde as well. But it seems weird that Steve and Sarah Jane kind of have something within them from which the anger can form. And for Rani, it just isn't, wasn't really there. Feels like a bit of an oversight. Clyde tries to explain to Steve that, no, this is, right, something happens when you say my name, my name is cursed, so this is just not you, please, please stop, please listen. Steve shoves him over, makes him drop his phone and stops on his phone. Another phone broken. That's a meme at this point, is just the amount of phones that get broken in this show. I gave up trying to keep up a, a while ago now, but I mean, maybe I should make a phone supercut. Maybe I should ignore the Mrs. Smith, I need you supercut and, and all the photos I've gathered for that. It's worth making a phone supercut now. Clyde runs off before Steve can stomp on him as well. And there's about a 30 second chase sequence with a lot of ADR'd game from the crowd, sort of, as they, they pursue him. Ends in Clyde hiding behind some bins and they run past with more ADR'd. Well, oh, he must have gone somewhere. And I imagine it was filmed from the back of a vehicle and Clyde sort of chased the vehicle and then all the others pursued him. Either that, or they found someone who could give Usain Bolt a run for his money, running backwards and operating a camera at the same time. Would be an absolute, just a legendary person. Clyde looks down at his finger, which is, is bleeding a bit, or at least very inflamed, and then we cut to him having made his way back to the museum. Obviously, it's my, my, I've got a splinter in my finger, and now when people say my name, it, it makes them angry. Let's go back to that tone pole and see what we can do. He finds Dr. Medigan, asks her about Native American curses, she mentions uh, Tippy Canoe. I mean, I don't think that that was necessarily a curse that was actually like put on by a Native American person. I think that was kind of more people noticed a pattern and went, oh, it must be a curse. So she doesn't even get around to saying if there is any cultural basis for curses or anything, because enter Sarah Jane, who did say that she'd be popping down. So, you know, they've set that up and they've paid that off. That's nice. She immediately kicks off, tells them to get him out of there, he tries to explain that his, his name has been cursed and it's turned all his friends against him. And Madigan is like, my God, you really believe you've been cursed, huh? Is she going to be helpful? Is she going to turn against him? Place your bets now. And she's sympathetic. You know, she says, well, he's, he's clearly distressed because Sarah Jane's like, oh, don't bother with him. But he says that all day his friends have been turning against him. He thinks it's tied to his name. And then, of course, Madigan says his name like an idiot. I mean, I'm sure that he must have introduced himself for the previous day when he got the splinter. Sure, there's, she could have remembered him because he is the one that she told off. But she had to go and say his name out loud when he believes that his name is cursed. And sure, I can't blame her that much because I don't think she's ever dealt with anything like this before. But we get the eyes and we get the anger. And Clyde realises that it's not just friends. It's anyone who hears his name. They, they get angry at him, and he gets probably thrown out by three security guards. Literally thrown out onto the ground down the steps. And we see inside, Sarah Jane phones the police and says that Clyde is harassing her. Outside the museum, that lady that Clyde gave the change to yesterday watches on. Clyde heads home and finds his mum sitting at the table, facing away from him. Camera goes over her shoulder, and we see an envelope addressed to Clyde. So you don't even need to hear it. You just need to see his name. Turns out he lives at Renfro Street. We can build up a whole map now. We've got Bannerman Road. Down. We've got Old Forest Road. We've got Renfro Street next, next street over. She asks where he's been. And her reason, in inverted commas, for, for being angry at him, is that he's always lying to her about where, where he's been. So it's interesting that she can sense that he's not always truthful about what he's been up to. But I assume she just usually sort of accepts it. But now it's been brought to the forefront. And she says... She doesn't want to hear him. She doesn't want to look at him. It's distressing for her too. She says it feels like her soul has been ripped out. Uh, but Clyde tells her, well, what have I done then? Why Why don't you... I mean, what's... Come on, you've got no reason for this. He says, you can't, you can't give me a reason for why you're so angry. And 
that's why that's that's why the whole kind of reasoning thing falls apart because it was nice to see that the anger was based in something from Sarah Jane. It was nice to see that it was based in something from Steve, but it was actually perhaps better that Ronnie Ronnie's anger seemed to come out of nowhere because Carla's anger is based in him not being truthful to her. And we're meant to be highlighting how this curse is unfair. And while it's still massively unfair that she's kicking him out, sure, he doesn't deserve any of that. She, in her mind, has a reason for it. He has not been telling the truth to her about what he gets up to. He's being really shady. And in her adult cursed state, she thinks that that's justification for kicking him out. So... I'd, I'd just, I'd draft this script again. You know, I'd, I'd send it back, send it back for another rewrite, ten years on. Can we just read you off the script, please? I tell you what, I would like to see it remade, though. Just, you know, judge it up a bit. Maybe remove the allusions to Native American people c cursing people and, and sort of all that stuff. And, and I think it's, there's a lot of potential in this script, just not realised in the best way. Anyway, ultimately, Carla does kick Clyde out because we hear police sirens outside too. I'm not sure why they've got the sirens on right now, but I mean, I get it. It's an audio cue that the police are here, so you don't need to pay, pay for the police car. And then immediately, I take that back, because we do see a police car. We get a glimpse of it just in the corner of frame as Clyde flees out the back door when Carla lets the police in. Now, Clyde is now homeless, and he's being pursued by the law, and it's genuinely very emotional. But all I want to know is, was that a real police car, or... Did they get in a random car and did they stick some police stickers on it and then position it mostly out of frame on purpose? And is that why they did the siren noise? Because the, the car doesn't have a real siren or does it, or what? They sort of had to indicate so the police are actually here and then, but did they get a real police car in? And if they did get a real police car in, why not film all of it? And I want to know. I want to know the behind the scenes of how this film was made. I want Sarah Jane Confidential, which unfortunately we can't get because they never filmed it at the time. Clyde heads past 13 Bannon Road, heads past Ronnie's house. I realise, I didn't pick this up when I wrote, but I've realised just now as I read it out, that's 13 Bannerman Road. That is, that's Bannerman Road. Sarah Jane said set up a thing for if Clyde ever walks down Bannerman Road to deal with him. Therefore, Mr. Smith has disobeyed that order. That's interesting, isn't it? Huh. Anyway, Clyde hears sort of echoes of bare times, and then we cut to him having headed to an ATM, it just appears to swallow his card and then repeat his name over and over again on the screen. Which means, that does it affect Tech too? It didn't affect Mr. Smith, but he's basically an alien, so he's 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 sort of Tech, sort of not. Was it was it the name on the card? Is it... I mean, the mobile phones worked fine. They didn't break. Surely they display his name on there. Maybe I'm prodding this too much and it's falling apart a bit and I need to hold back. I need to give it the space to make its mistakes so I can let the episode actually shine. And... You know, maybe I should I should stop trying to find out why why this ATM is angry at him and just accept that the world is turned against him right now. But I tell you what, I tell you what, despite its very big flaws, the episode is kind of shining because Daniel Anthony is a great actor. He's given a brilliant performance as a guy whose life is crumbling around him. This is incredibly emotional. It is one of the heavier episodes that is far more character focused and sort of ah, a big prosthetic man is attacking. It's one of the highlights of Sarah Jane Adventures. Clyde spots another police car, he moves on. It's dark now, I'm not sure how long he's been walking for, but I mean he couldn't even grab a coat from home. He's just he's just there in his in his shirt and like his sort of thicker shirt on top. And it starts to rain hard. And Clyde is now drenched. And it's probably the lowest point that he's ever been in, in his life. And he doesn't deserve any of this. He just sure he touched a totem pole, but like, you know, you don't you don't deserve to lose everyone you've ever loved and it is so sad and he sort of hammers on the door to a building and he gets no response and he tears the posters off it and just sort of slumps down in the corner sort of trying to get some form of shelter and he starts to cry and along comes that woman who was outside the museum and she asks if he's all right and he says no she extends out her hand she says come with me and we roll the credits on part one part two you know how we start, we have our 13 Bannerman Road, we have our privacy on, we have our titles. Clyde wakes up in a sort of little shelter, sort of like a tent, but made from various sticks and sheeting and boxes and things under a bridge. Lots of other ones around. It's sort of like a, a, a hamlet for, for homeless people. And he is greeted by our unnamed one lady, who just sort of wanders aloud. What was he thinking, kipping out in the rain? 
And she hands him a coat, and he says this is all new to him. And she says, I tell you what, I recognise you from the other day. He says, oh, I didn't recognise you till just now. She says, well, if you've had a row with your parents, just go home and spare a thought for those of us who don't have homes to go to. And this is the second depiction of homelessness in as many episodes, and I wonder if there was going to be a theme that kind of tied this series together in a way that we haven't necessarily seen in previous series. That would be interesting. Maybe it's just a coincidence. Clyde tries to explain that he's got nobody now, he's on his own, and she introduces herself as Ellie Faber and prompts Clyde to offer up his name. In the background, we see a pizza box, Enrico's pizza. Clyde introduces himself as Enrico Box. I didn't think that it could get worse than Sarah Jane basically naming Sky by accident, but there we have it. Enrico Box. Ellie gives an incredibly unconvinced, okay, just saying with one word that she doesn't believe it, but if he's got his reasons for being shady, then fair enough. Back in the attic, Sarah Jane is chucking all of Clyde's things into a bin bag. She's incensed by seeing his name on all those bits of art. And Sky is still wondering what could be spurring all this. At the museum, a guard sees lightning zap from the totem pole and runs off to get someone. Back under the bridge, Ellie's filling Clyde on a bit of her backstory. She says she's been homeless for two years after her dad died, her mum remarried, and let's just say it didn't work out for me, okay? She says there's good people and bad here, that's like everywhere. What you've really got to look out for is the night dragon. People sometimes just disappear overnight, and we've taken to saying that the night dragon got them. Now that's interesting. We've set this up at the start of episode two, so we've got to reserve, resolve both this and the curse by the end of this episode. I might be wrong, but I'm not sure of other episodes that have done something like that. Large time at school, Ronnie's chatting to Sky, basic stuff about how Toad in the Hole doesn't actually contain toads, complaining that Mr. Smith has, has sort of set Sky up for failure because he's just given her a, a very logical thing about, well, there are 5,000 species of toad, and not really giving her any practical advice. Sky says, uh, well, I think he might be a bit scared of me, actually. And Ronnie says, well, don't worry. He's going to get used to you. You're one of the gang now. And Sky sees her opening, and she asks, what, like Clyde? And Ronnie's furious. And Sky says that Sarah Jane told her that everything is a reason, but there seems to be no reason for Ronnie or Sarah Jane turning against him. And Ronnie just storms off. Madigan has called Sarah Jane back to the museum to tell her about the lightning. Wondering if, with her reputation for reporting on strange phenomena, do you know anything about this at all? Sarah Jane subtly scans the totem pole and exclaims quietly, Bear was dead. As Madigan recounts the myth that Hercule Tech was sealed in the pole and it was put in the cave and it was said that he'd escape should it ever come back into the hands of men. And I really feel like the wrong people are getting punished for it now. Like, Clyde, Clyde, is, Clyde touched it, right? The people who took it out of the cave should have the curse on them. And sure, like they took it because in the story, the Native American people didn't necessarily want it. But I don't think they particularly got anything about against Clyde. I don't think they want him to suffer either. And were the archaeologists not cursed? Like, why Like why? Why is that a Comtech only just woken up now? Madigan turns away to take a call, and Sarah Jane spots the eyes at the top of the totem pole glow, and then she tells Madigan... You should probably just close this exhibition as a precaution and ushers her away from it. We see Clyde and Ellie out begging, essentially. Clyde realises that this is her reality every day. And she says, well, yeah, it's this or going through bins. And she also says that he's coming across too cocky. Like, when he's asking people for money, he's just, he's, he's putting them off. And he says, well, it's charismatic, isn't it? It's charisma. And sarcastically, she says, well, whoever heard of a homeless person with charisma? And this is the sort of episode that stands out because because homelessness is basically its focus and so you go deeper into the issue and it makes more of an impact and you know i like that sure we've got a weird sci-fi story about a cursed guy but we're taking moments to to teach kids hey maybe be a bit more empathetic to the people you see on the street which is a good idea in a not quite perfect episode but it's got a solid core clyde sort of us well what what happens? Do you just sort of stay out here and get worn down and say goodbye to your hopes and dreams? And then he says, well, the, the ones the ones that have made it are the ones that don't give up. And so Clyde sort of alludes to his past and his, his, what his life was like. And he, he says he, he was, he saw, he saw creatures uh, and tries to come to terms with that. That's maybe a past life now. It's not going to be like that from now on. 
And Ellie asks, what creatures? Were you into wildlife? And Clyde says, yeah, it was a wildlife. In the attic, Sarah Jane is on the verge of tears. Mr. Smith asks if she's okay. And she says, she saw the totem pole come to life, just for a minute, and she can feel that it's something dangerous. And Mrs. Smith confirms that it was dormant, but now he can read some energy building around it. I love, I love energy. Sci-fi, isn't it? It's like every episode, there's energy. He scans for energy. There's always energy. What is it? It's energy. Sarah Jane's chair has a bit of tape wrapped around it, as if it's slightly broken. And I wonder if they found a broken chair and they picked it for that purpose, or if they decided to act as though it's broken to give it a little bit more character. Either way, quite nice. Clyde and Ellie end up at Stevens Point, which is a sort of uh, food bank kind of place, offers some hot meals it seems like. Ellie points out some people, says one of them was an Xboxer, uh, one lady came from Poland to get married and then she was dumped, one of them used to work in the city and now she tells everyone she meets that she used to drive a Porsche to the point that she earned the name Polly the Porsche. She makes the point that homelessness could happen to anyone, and pretty easily too. And they sit down with Mystic Mags, who is reading the tea leaves, and she's uh, a, a little a little bit over the top. And I think that maybe this episode is being a tad hampered by the sort of, you know, keep it light, it's a kid's show vibe. And, and that's weird, I know that's weird, because we've had parents drive off to their deaths, and we've had kids burn alive in a locked room. But it feels a little bit more like the, the Nazis in Lost in Time, where maybe they can't quite go as dark as it, as it deserves. And maybe it's suffering a tad for it. Maybe just, just a little bit. But I think they're doing what they can. And, you know, it's, it's these sorts of moments that we get that make it more than your silly alien fighting show. It gives it the depth and variety and humanity that makes me like the show and want to come back 10 years on and do a podcast about it. So for all of Mags' growling, I, I appreciate her. She says that something's coming. And Clyde asks, what, the Night Dragon? And she says, well, I can always see that come in before someone goes missing but this is something else and it's put its mark on you and it's put its mark on everyone that knows you and Clyde is thoroughly spooked by just how accurate that is and so he thanks Ellie for trying to help him he says well ultimately I don't think anybody can help me I am cursed and he leaves and I wonder how does Mags know this what's the explanation but you have to consider the context of this now the Russell T Davies era of Doctor Who is over but not that over it's just been a year and he's still the showrunner of Sarah Jane Adventures. And I was listening to this thing uh, about the most recent, at time of recording, I think it'll be the one before, by the time this podcast comes out, but the most recent episode of Flux. And they wondered if the visions of the Weeping Angel in the mind uh, was sort of a bit of a callback to the whole humans are a little bit psychic, latent psychic abilities vibe of the Russell T. Davies era. Now, it's been a little while since I watched it. I can't really remember many examples of this, except perhaps the Archangel Network. But I, I don't feel like that was a human thing. That was, that was set up by the satellites, but maybe there's, there's something like that. Apparently, according to this thing I was listening to, a little bit a little bit of psychic stuff, you know, hanging about in humanity is the sort of thing that Russell T. Davies liked to do. So I'm just taking their word for it. And so maybe we won't get much of an explanation for Mags, because it was sort of meant to be taken as a given that some people are just a little bit weird like that. Maybe. Or maybe that's all nonsense, who knows? But that's sort of what I'm choosing to go with. Ellie catches up to Clyde. He says, he can't tell her his name. And she says, well, that doesn't matter. I know Enrico's not your real name, but if you can't tell me because you're cursed, then join the club. Look at us. We're all cursed here. And then he pulls her out of the way of some skateboarders. And I think, well, it's, I mean, you could have could have had some drama. It could have been a car or something, couldn't it? <laughs> It's just a couple of skateboarders we're going to knock her over. But it's, it's enough to have uh, a bit of romantic tension. And then I start to wonder what it would have been like if Rani was Clyde's girlfriend and the curse had made her break up with him. I wonder if that would have, that would have hit a bit more. Speaking of the curse, more glowing totem pole eyes and then an L cart that kind of carries a roaring sound into the next scene of Rani and Haresh pulling up at home. Then we come back from school. Rani is barely able to look at her dad because she is crying. And he asks what's wrong, and she says she doesn't know. She just feels like there is something wrong. She feels like she's lost something special, but doesn't know what it is, and it's driving her mad. And Haresh doesn't really understand what's brought this on, but he gives her a hug. And we cut to Sky, who's gone round to Carla's. And she asks, well, how are you settling in? Have you met Luke yet? He's a lovely boy. He was such good friends with... And then she's tearing up, and she says this keeps happening. She just keeps thinking of something, but she doesn't know what. And it feels like a part of her world is gone. And Sky asks, was it Clyde? 
And here comes the anger. There, halfway through part two, the sky's still. She's trying her best to figure out what's going on, but she doesn't know yet. No, we've got no idea how how they're going to resolve this. We've got no hint. We've got no idea about the night dragon, but this is the point where Carla tells Sky to to stop saying his name because it hurts. And Sky picks up the letter and she sees that name glow, and it finally clicks that his name is in some way linked. So she runs out of the house, telling Carla it's going to be okay. She's going to fix this. We see the face on the totem pole morph into a CGI face that looks a bit ropey. I think faces are just one of those things like, you know, humanity's evolved to see faces, they trigger the uncanny valley and all that. And so this kind of blend between a carved stylized face and human-like features, not really sure what it's meant to be, just doesn't doesn't quite look all that good. But, you know, it's just, it's, yeah. It's raining again. I reckon, hmm. Well, I wonder if this might have something to do with the totem pole. It's not fish, but I mean, well, we've had we've had the scene of the totem pole preceding this one, and then it's raining, so that's implied a link between them. I think maybe I, I tend to pause the show a lot to make notes, so I think maybe I'm breaking up the flow. But when I think about it, we have just gone totem pole rain. There is that implication there, and also we literally saw the totem pole firing out lightning earlier, so it's clear that storms come with this totem pole. So Ellie and Clyde are shouting somewhere else because Ellie says that well Max has probably told everyone that you're cursed a lot of people are superstitious we, we probably don't want to go back there right now they try and start a fire to keep warm and Clyde offers up his comics that he's got in his bag to burn now the thing is he wastes a match lighting them but they've already got some candles lit so they could have just caught the paper with that and the the scene isn't about that the scene is about Clyde sacrificing the things that he's worked so hard on in order to, to survive and it's sort of another moment of him being forced away from his old life. But yeah, I just think practically you could have you could have held the held the paper over the candle at least rather than keep keep your match keep your match, man. And then we come back around full circle to Clyde having asked Ellie where she was on the day of the storm, exactly like we saw at the intro of part one. She says she was just out on the street when a fish landed between her feet. And Clyde says, "Well, what if that is a sign that something bad's coming?" Because he's he's worried about this curse. And then he says, "Well, maybe." But maybe it doesn't matter, because I've had two years of telling myself that I was going to go and get into a scheme and get a job and get a flat and meet a nice boy and, and have a life. And now finally, maybe things are looking up for me, because maybe that's coming true. And it's a strong implication that Clyde is, is her nice boy. And he puts his arm around her and they kind of huddle there together in front of the fire and they sit out the thunder and lightning. And we see that all the totem pole faces have now transformed. Maybe they look a little bit better if they weren't moving. Like, the the... The CG faces look alright on their own, but it's sort of the, the opening mouths that let them down as they sort of stretch and contort around the face hole. It's just, it's all a bit weird. Ronnie and Sarah Jane are saying that they feel the same to each other. They both feel like somebody has died, but they don't know who. And Sarah Jane says, look, this, this feeling, it must be to do with the totem pole. It was dormant, but now its energy's been getting stronger since we visited it. So it is the prime suspect for what is having this weird effect on us. Sky says... I'll tell you when it started. It started when Clyde touched it. And I bet you'll never guess what happens. They get angry. But Sky goes over to Mr. Smith and activates him with a good old supercut catchphrase and says that this is the only way that they'll listen to her. Sky asks if Clyde getting the splinter could have activated the totem pole. So I guess the activation is not so much if you touch it, but it's if you damage it slightly. I don't know. It's kind of it's weird, weird, weird requirements, isn't it? And Mr. Smith says, well, that is conceivable. And Sarah Jane says, no, I mean, this doesn't make sense. And Sky says, well, I'll tell you what doesn't make sense. It's you all turning your backs on him. Even Carla has done that. She feels the same way as you. And there's a, there's the starts of a, of a realisation sort of forming in Sarah Jane's face. But Ronnie says, look, it can't be Clyde that's missing from my life because I hate him. And Sky persists. You know, why? Why do you hate him, Ronnie? You can remember being best friends with him. You know you hate him now. But what has possibly caused that difference besides alien interference? Sarah Jane says, Sky, look, please just, just stop stop talking about Clyde, please. And Mr. Smith chimes in. Oh, you're having this reaction to his name that suggests that Sky is correct. You have been subjected to a psychophonic programming, possibly to keep Clyde isolated, though for what purpose we are unsure. Sky says a Hedicom tech must need him for something. And Sarah Jane says, well, if the totem pole fell into the hands of men, he'd escape. So Clyde getting the splinter is literally the pole in the hand of a man, and that's caused the curse. 
and they need to break it before he does escape and wreak havoc. Okay, sure. I mean, this is this is stronger than some of Phil's other endings. The curse can be overcome if you sit down and think about how illogical it is, but you just don't want to because the name is painful. Fair enough. Sky persists, you know, because she, she's figured it out. The gang can see that she's talking sense, and Sky says that Clyde's name hurts you, so you don't want to say it. But if you can overcome that, maybe that'll actually break the whole curse. On the one hand, we've got no idea why that'll break the whole curse. On the other hand, we know that Hedicum Tech has made it painful in order to stop people saying it anymore. And we, I like that our characters have to overcome the physical pain and show their own strength and their dedication to save Clyde. And I'm on board with it. Both Sarah Jane and Rani struggle, but hand in hand, they're both able to stutter out Clyde Langer and then they're able to say it more freely and they embrace. And they hug Sky too. Manolo, this isn't maybe a, a genius answer. It's just sort of quite lucky that she's an alien and the curse didn't affect her. You know, still good on her for figuring it out at 13 years old. Or the equivalent of 13 years old. She's about a month old. I know, it's a weird, weird show. And they set out to getting Clyde back. Clyde's sitting with Ellie, having drawn her portrait on the back of a paper bag. He says he's got a plan for them, right? He's going to be a street artist. He's going to draw people's portraits for money. And then we're going to build up enough money and we're going to get a place together. And she kisses him as she tells him, hey, stay there. I'm going to get a coffee for both of us. We can share it because, you know, this deserves a celebration. And that is precisely when the gang show up, having presumably driven around London, hoping they'd see him. They've just got lucky and, and, and spotted him there. Ronnie says they've been driving all night, actually. And they all hug and they feel Clyde in on how it didn't affect Sky, So she fought so hard for him and how Hedekum Tech is somehow using him to escape and there's there's really no time we need you because you're the one who can put this right he says no hang on hang on hang on a minute i need to wait for ellie and they say you can't the fate of the world is at stake we can't allow hedicum tech to get free still don't know exactly why he's so bad i mean he causes a lot of storms and some fish terrain but i'm sure that nobody wants to find out so yeah it, it is it is a bit weird uh so at this point i think back to the very first episode of doctor who where Hartnell compares the sort of incomprehensibility of the TARDIS to the quite an offensive metaphor about Native American people and a, and a train, and how somehow it's it's quite deep rooted in into Doctor Who. It's just a bit weird, and I don't think this is is necessarily done out of hatred. I'm not sure anybody really knows they're doing it because the episode itself is promoting tolerance and acceptance and empathy for homeless people. Like they're trying to get out a good message. It's just cause it's so weird that they're like, okay, you've got the homeless and this juxtaposed with them just being like, oh, well, this uh, Native American curse, oh, because, you know, Native American people, they do the spooky bad magic. I wonder if the episode would be salvageable if you did something like, oh, the person that shot King Harold with the arrow was an alien and you get a splinter from the arrow shaft, or if it is too, like, built around the sort of racism of like Native American people do the scary bear magic. Bit of a tangent I'm going off on, but you know, it feels it just feels important to to point out, doesn't it? As far as I'm aware, they're still very happy to show us on Britbox as well. So it's it's not not considered bad enough that it must be locked away and, and scrubbed from the archives. Clyde calls out for Ellie, he gets no response, and he says, well, to himself, he makes a promise that he's he's gonna come back. And finally, hesitantly, accepts that he has to go with Sarah Jane. Back in the attic, Mr. Smith says that he's hacked the transmat systems of a passing alien vessel. Sarah Jane tells him to do it. The it in question is to bring the totem pole to the attic. And while the faces still look a little funky, the teleportation effect is it kind of fades in, but forms from particles. It's quite nice. Everything darkens. We hear more thunder outside, just in case we weren't convinced that this thing is responsible for the weather. And Sarah Jane tells Clyde to do as she told him. A window smashes, a branch bursts in, and a load of driving rain too, and whips up all the wind. I didn't expect those practical effects, and as more windows smash, Clyde gives his big speech that Hedicum Tech tried to ruin his life and take everything from him, but he failed because his name is Clyde Langer, and he shouts it a few more times for emphasis, right into that CGI face, and then the totem pole kind of moistly dissolves away, and the weather clears right up. And I think, hmm. We never really knew what the villain wanted, do we? We never really, never really got that. We have a great big hug with everyone. Very happy to see him back and happy to have solved the crisis. And then we head over to Carla. And she's overjoyed to see Clyde back. And I remember that, hey, aren't the police still meant to be looking for him? 
I guess they gave up. Maybe they felt irrationally angry when they heard his name too, but now it's cleared up, they no longer have the desire to pursue him. Who knows? But I'll tell you what, blimey, there's a lot of hugs going on here. And then we see Clyde and the gang go back to the old places that he was at with Ellie. She's not under that second bridge that they were at. They go to Stephen's point and they ask around and Clyde shows the portrait as essentially a missing person poster, which is quite clever. And they go back to that first bridge with, some, with the, you know, the one that had the makeshift tents. And they ask everyone, but nobody's seen her. And Clyde says, well, this, we, we can't stop looking. And Sarah Jane sort of remarks on how they've seen things that it's best nobody knows about, but a lot of people refuse to know about this world of homeless people by choice. And then, with no leads, Clyde asks Sarah Jane, could we use Mr. Smith to find her? And it's at that point that Ronnie spots a poster for a jazz music musician, Ellie Faber, because her name was an alias too. And so with no real leads whatsoever, the chances seem very slim. A truck goes by, guess what it says on it? Night Dragon Haulage. And a man comes up to them and explains that that's what took her. Occasionally drivers will come by, they'll give them a lift to Glasgow or Dublin or even France. It's a, it's a new chance to start over, which is why it, it appeals to some people. And Sarah Jane suggests that they head home. And it becomes night time and we see Clyde in bed at night and he looks at the portrait he, he drew and he smiles sadly. And we roll the credits. I think Ellie is the sort of character who would fit well in a sort of expanded media story. Something audio or a book, maybe, but I don't think anything did like actually come of that at the time. I suppose that's, I mean, that's that's one way to write her out, because she can't be Clyde's love interest, because that's Rani. But, I mean, was she confused by the Night Dragon, but then the, the truth, and it appealed to her? Did she like to make up stories? You know, did she know it was a truck all along, but just like to make up stories that it snatches people away? There's a, there's a lot we don't know about her, and I guess, I guess we never will. And that's the way it goes sometimes. And I'm not sure if we've had an episode end as ambiguously as that before, but I don't mind it. I tell you what, I was giving up for the Night Dragon to not be resolved, or maybe we could have come to the conclusion that it took her, but we just see a truck go by and it says it on it, and we think, oh, we'll try and put them together ourselves. But overall, yeah, it's an interesting ending. It's quite a powerful ending. It feels quite emotional to it, and it's a break from the convention for Phil Ford in what was his last episode to, you know, to be written by him. And so next time is the last episode of Series 5, but not the last episode of the podcast. Luke is back, and there's a holographic American. So uh, I'll see you then.